Good morning, everyone, my friends. Shirley, are you, there? are you okay? Okay. My friends, um, the readings are all steeped in uh, this uh, feeling of abiding and binding and being together. And our first reading from the Acts of the Apostles is the account of the early years of the church. And we are given the account about Saul of Tarsus. And um, in this reading, we heard about the trials of Saul. And the one thing that I really want to point out that I didn't at the last Mass was, in spite of the, in spite of the troubles that Paul, we know him as St. Paul, but he's, uh, in spite of what was going on, his per, he was being persecuted because he had become Christian. Uh, in the face of this, he only became stronger. He did not say, I hate God because now these people are beating me up and uh, everything's so tough and blah, 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 I'm going to leave. No, he became stronger in the faith. And he proclaimed the love of God even more intently and fiercely, if you will. Um, in the account given today, um, we are told that uh, Saul, he's been in Damascus preaching. And, uh, and this is about year, two and a half, three years after his conversion. And he decides he's going to Jerusalem. Now remember, before his conversion, what did he do? He persecuted the followers of the way. He persecuted Christians. So Saul decides he's going back to Jerusalem where he had been really bad to them. So the disciples, the apostles there are terrified of him. They're not sure, is, he, is, he, is it really him? Like, he, has he had a change of heart? Uh, is he playing a game with us? Um, and then when he gets there, uh, the apostles there are afraid. And not only that, but the Hellenists are there. The Hellenists are uh, uh, Jews that are Greek. The apostles were Jews that were Palestinian. So in the eyes of the Jewish people, the Hellenists, Saul is a traitor because he's become Christian. So they want to kill him because he's a traitor. <laughs> Saul can't seem to have a good day. Huh? <laughs> so here we go. Here, here's the setting for this. And um, my friends, uh, when I, whenever necessary, I'll, I'll, I want to teach you about words that are being used. In the English translation, it's kind of difficult. We kind of miss things. But in the Greek, um, the word that's being used in the first reading is bold. The word in the Greek is perhesia. Perhesia has this feeling. It's a way that uh, very intimate way of speaking. It's not a style so much. Uh, the implication is that it's the way the person really is, but it's a particular way, and last night I pointed out, it's a way a husband and wife would speak to each other as opposed to uh, you coming in speaking to me or opposed to how you would speak to the officer or how you would... Uh, it's, it's different, and it's, um, the feeling of it is uh, it's very honest, it's very simple, um, it communicates ideas directly and almost bluntly, without elaborate words. So when we hear that Saul was boldly proclaiming God, the word being used, perhesia, so he was speaking as if he was speaking to a brother or to a sister. Um, 
in spite of the persecutions, in spite of the fear that they had of them. Now, this becomes important because St. John will use the same word when he tells you to pray to the Father. Pray to the Father. Because he's your Father. And leave all those big words out. Speak to him plainly. Oh, thou is Father, I am na, 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 na. Talk to your father. Talk to dad, right? So, my friends, this is what's going on. And uh, our second reading, uh, John is reflecting on the commandment of love. He said, this will be the binding. This is the binding thing. Beyond words, he will say, I need you to, you need to do this. And it is love that binds all together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what binds them together is love. What binds the Messiah to the world is love. What binds Jesus to his apostles and disciples is love. What binds the disciples to each other is love. Of course, and they're all united in faith, right? They have faith and trust in the Father. Jesus has faith and trust in the Father. The Father uh, does this to the Son, the Spirit, uh, of course, always. And so we see this. Um, and then in the gospel, Jesus uses uh, images. And my friends, um, there's many ways to go about this reading. And uh, uh, the lectionary, the way it's set up, uh, the, one of the last phrases that I really wanted is going to be the opening lines of the gospel. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and you become my disciples. But it goes on. As the Father loves me, so I, I also love you. Remain, binding, be in union in my love. Keep my commandments. If you do this, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. And Jesus goes on, this is the commandment. Love one another as I love you. Now, there's something else that we forget. This is Jesus' final discourse before this happens. He's going to, the crucifixion is going to happen, and he'll ultimately go to the Father in the ascension. But when we look at the gospel, and especially John's, uh, there's an intense struggle always between Jesus of Nazareth and the religious establishment of his time. And particularly, uh, he had, uh, the Pharisees really disliked him. There was an ongoing rivalry and bitterness between Jesus and the Pharisees. But there's also another one between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They couldn't stand each other. They worshiped the same God. Jesus understood this and called out their hypocrisy. But these two enemies found a common ground, their hatred of Jesus. What did I tell you binds the Father to the Son and the Son to the Holy Spirit? Love. What bound the Pharisees and Sadducees to each other? Hatred. They found a hatred of Jesus. That's, how they be, that's not a good way to be, un, to be bound together in hatred. But they couldn't stand Jesus. And uh, so there is, if you will, a rivalry for the hearts and minds of the people. And my friends, Jesus frequently took things from the Old Testament, he's Jewish, he, and uh, images, very beloved images that evoked many emotions for the people. And he would take those images and 
uh, he would, if you will, remove them, disown them from the religious establishment of the time and apply them to himself. And in the process of doing this, he, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but he flamed the fire of antagonism between him and the religious establishment. It just made it, ultimately, this would happen because of it. And um, last week in the gospel, Jesus used the image of the good shepherd. And I don't think I told you, but the good shepherd was applied to the father. It was an image given to God the Father. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Oh, man. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were furious. How dare you? Because now he makes himself out to be this. Well, in the gospel today, it goes further. <laughs> the true vine in their time was uh, attributed to Israel. They were considered to be the true vine. And um, they understood uh, themselves uh, to be that of God. It's, a, it's hard for me to understand and explain it. Uh, and they saw the life force of the vine being them. Uh, not taking away from God. It was just a really odd way they thought about it. Um, and Jesus takes it and applies it to himself. Now they're livid. Because he said, I am that. So now not only is he taking it away from the Father, he's taking it away from them. And um, Isaiah the prophet had something to say about this. Uh, the true vine that God planted so lovingly a long time ago, as Israel remembers, has become languished. Isaiah 24-7. And because of the languish, uh, what is produced is wild grapes. Isaiah 5-4. Wild grapes are basically sour and good for nothing. That's what Isaiah is saying about the people. According to Jesus, this tragedy of thought and mind and heart has occurred because of the uncaring and uncultivating nature and heart and hands of the religious leaders of his time. He dismisses them, Matthew 15, 1 through 9, and in their place, he puts himself as it should be. He is the true vine. In doing so, he presents himself as the source of life, the source of light, the source of wisdom, the source of truth, all of which is accurate. Jesus solemnly affirms before his apostles and his disciples this fact, and he did not mince any words with the religious leaders of his time. He spoke it publicly to them. Jesus said, only those who follow him are the branches of the true vine. But so, my friends, in 2021, in this point in salvation history, you are those branches. You are his disciples. Jesus said that the branches must stay with the vine. They must adhere to it. We must adhere ourselves to Jesus, to his truth, to his way, to his life, to his words, so that we may bear fruit in the way that the Father expects. 
Jesus makes it clear, without him, we can do nothing. Can you go grocery shopping? Sure you can. But not holiness. Holiness, you need him. So my friends, if there are Christians today that produce very little, it is because they have not adhered to the vine in any meaningful way. The book of Revelations refers to them as lukewarm. We would understand it as nominal. In name only are they Christian. What measure of productivity can we be expected of Christians uh, whose attachment to Christ then is lukewarmish or just nominal? Nominal Christians may be said to be Christians who are taken for baptism in the beginning of their discipleship. And then nobody sees them again, perhaps until marriage, maybe. And then maybe, almost always, at funeral. In between, they have not lived as true disciples. I can't even use the word ignorant. They're ignorant of the ways they just don't. They're not true disciples of Jesus Christ. They are, for all intents and purposes, baptized heathens. <laughs> this is kind of, when they laugh, it's funny, but it, it's not funny when I say it. But um, what they have done is they've listened to the voice of the world in its place of Jesus. And the world has all kinds of things it likes to say. Oh, that's not so bad. Don't worry about it. You don't have to do that. No, no, no. No, no, no. Church, people worry about the church saying no, no, no. Society, culture says, no, no, no. You don't have to do that. No, no, no. You don't have to, you don't have to like everybody. No, no, no. No, no, no. But as baptized, listen to that and become confused by it. Jesus said that a genuine follower of his is someone who adheres to him and his ways and his words all the time and should not do otherwise. These lukewarm Christians languish on the vine, so to speak, and at best produce only wild grapes, using Isaiah's words. My friends, all Christian churches, all of them, have lukewarm members. These could be said to be people who are half in and half out, or as a theologian once said, they are simply spectators in the church. My friends, a couple years ago, a survey went out, and they continue, and it asked Americans if they were religious, what denomination or what faith would they identify with? And they said Christian. What follows then is that the majority of people who are religious are Christian in the United States. But if there are so many Christians in this country, why does our culture and social life not better reflect it? 
Well, part of the answer perhaps is because Mother Church has not done so well at catechizing the young ones and then adults that have been not been formed. And I will own that. I will take that. But, and we've been working on it. Since I've come, I have tried to teach. Our faith formation team, we have been working nonstop to figure out how do we go about doing, how do we evangelize, how do we do this? I mean, when we have Catholics that don't understand what baptism is and don't understand what confirmation is and don't understand what the sacrament of the Eucharist is, that we don't... Is it any wonder why they're lukewarm? But perhaps, on the other hand, there's a lack of motivation and a lack of desire to truly trust God and embrace Jesus Christ. That too will keep them nominal. That too will keep those who are baptized disciples in name only. At any rate, it is hard to reconcile much in our current social behavior and even in personal behaviors with Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God on earth. Today's gospel, which is part of Jesus' parting discourse to his friends, his parting message to his friends has a theme of love attached to it, as well as being united and abiding in union with him. The Christian, for lack of a better word, the Christian law of love is not primarily some type of legislation or some type of ethical demand but it is a way of life legislating morality never works it never has Jesus wants the heart to change a few years ago there was this I watched this program and it was a hypothetical thing, and they went and they asked people, if you knew that you would not get caught ever, never get a chance, would you dot, dot, dot? Would you steal? Would you commit adultery? Would you kill? Would you? And sadly, they said yes. This is why legislating morality doesn't work. What happens is, so you will not steal because you are afraid of prison. Jesus would say, you do not steal because you love the other. The heart has to change. If society is going to change, truly change. The human heart has to change. And Jesus came to do that. I know people say, well, you talk about this Jesus of Nazareth, and he came, and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed? Everything has changed. Oh, no, there's still war. There's still cancer. There's still blah, 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 blah. The human heart has changed. He has changed us from within if we allow it. And in doing so, then we will impact the world. 
but we must stay in union with him and as those original apostles with his church. In this context, the parable of the vine and branches is Jesus' invitation for you to love intently, to love intensely the Father, Him, the Spirit, and each other. We would not need the Ten Commandments if we loved as Jesus said to love. Last night, Michelle was here and I went off about the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to do that today because that was like 10 minutes to my homily. <laughs> I'll leave that for another time to explain what that is exactly and why they were given. We get it wrong. That's why Jesus came to help us explain it. The life of faith in Jesus and Christian loves. Love assures us of abiding in the Father in God. Obedience to his words and everything gives us confidence in prayer to approach him and to not be afraid of judgment and to trust his mercy and precept, languishing, as it were, using Isaiah's words in the shadows of lukewarm faith, lukewarm Christianity. Jesus is quoted in Matthew, Matthew 15, 8. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain do they worship me. When Jesus quoted, first of all, what is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about hypocrisy. The way people think, the way they talk, and the way they act are different from what they claim. Not consistent. So what he was saying is the people of Isaiah's time were being hypocrites. Jesus saying the people of his time were being hypocrites. But when Jesus used it, he did not use it to force people away from him. He did not use that quote to alienate. He used it to draw them in to himself. He was hoping it would open their eyes and hearts, calling out, this is what you're doing, stop and come to me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. My friends, if we want the world to change, we need to do what the Father has told us through his Son. Only then will the hearts of the people change. And then will the world change. And then he will come back. Then he will come back. Then there'll be no more war. Then there'll be no more racism. Then there'll be no more cancer. Then there will be no more old age. There will be no more hatred. But if we did what Jesus told us to do, even now those things would be a reality. Brothers and sisters, 
I will continue. I'm going to end my homily. Uh, let's pray and think about the scriptures of this day and the words that I've given you. When we think about it on a world scene, it becomes overwhelming to us. But remember those 12 men in Jerusalem. It started right there in a little teeny city, and then it expanded. Let us begin here at St. Nicholas. Let us impact our own parish. At last Mass, I joked and I said, and then when we get to Seattle, we'll have the Paul experience. <laughs> They're going to persecute us. <laughs> I'm just joking for everyone watching. Just joking. Just joking. <laughs> but when we look at it that way, it begins here in our hearts. Huh? My friends, um, uh, let us pray for the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church follows a different calendar, and today is Easter Sunday for them. So to the Orthodox Christians, uh, God bless you and love you and, uh, for the celebration. And uh, we pray for all the uh, Paul uh, did so much. And we heard about the three, the three churches uh, that lived in peace. Do you know why they lived in peace? Because Paul stopped persecuting them. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Saul was persecuting them in the first reading and said, and then they found peace uh, because Saul stopped killing them, <laughs> terrorizing them. But uh, to Paul's credit, uh, today there are 33,000 denominations of the Protestant traditions. So you see the power of love and faith. 